Hello and welcome to the latest edition of My Beautiful Mistakes. And my guest today is Sergio Matola. Sergio, how are you? I'm very good. Are you, Andy? Thanks I'm for very having good. me. Thank you. No, no, no problem at all. Could you tell us who you are and what you do and what your company is, please? So I'm Sergio. Great meeting you, everyone. Thanks for having me. I'm originally from Milan, moved to London when I was very young. I did all my university master, PhD, all my study and education in London. I think I spent over 22 years there. So I feel myself uh, a lot of a Londoner and less of an Italian, which is very important, I think, from a culture perspective. I always thought that I mean, you get a lot of progressive way of thinking, open mind, completely different from what you get in, in some of traditional European country. I started a very I don't know, traditional city career. I was a, an insurance broker, been in insurance for a little while, a few years. I worked with the major brokers, Aon Willis, uh, taking care of many of venture capital funds, banks. Uh, then at some point, I got I got bored. Can you say that? Really bored of moving papers around desk. I and mean, that was the job, like closing deals, closing deals. Uh, it's not much creativity, not much product. And I had in my DNA the willingness to, I don't know, build something, no? do something. Be known because I managed to build so the wrong decision, I think, because it's so hard to build stuff. We can be for later. And after my master, I took a master at Cass Business School. I started in real estate. That was a good choice because it was, I think, before 2008. So, I mean, you, you, you know how, how, how that one went well. <laughs> but I, I moved to Chicago actually around that time with a friend. We wanted to, to grow the international division of a big American developer. And that's where I actually started traveling in the U.S. and got to know the technology culture because we had project in Orlando, project in San Francisco, project around places where if you want the startup culture, technology, digital culture was coming up. And to be honest, after less than 12 months, I said, that's my future. That's it. So I switched uh, and I started really working on technology innovation. And that's what I've done since 2008, 2009. So it's over close to 15 years now. What, what was it about about technology that fascinated you? Was it the the as you say the building of the architecture, or was it the possibility of what technology could do? But I think I mean most of people that knows me, like my family, they believe that I was a sort of architect. That that's what I should have done because I'm somehow in my way very creative. So the idea that you could envision a future, build the future, so use the technology to change, that was the main driver. I, I have the opportunity to really apply my, my skills, my intellectual, the way I see stuff uh, and really understand how you can improve on a business model, you can provide better services, you can progress culture and, and, and business. That was really, really fascinating. That was the main, I think, uh, emotional driver to to fall in love with all, for that stuff. Then whatever is revolutionary, how do you say, progressive, I mean, that's something which I just deep in. And did you, uh, the first thing that you, what was the first venture you had in technology? Was it was it a success? No, it wasn't. <laughs> well, that fits well into the podcast then, doesn't it? Tell us about your beautiful mistake in your first, first technology venture. But listen, the first venture was not, I mean, it was a lot of tech, but it was still like a traditional business. Basically, we built a food store. I mean, it was in uh, behind Carnaby Street. So the idea was with a good friend from university, we said, uh, I believe that the next trend in food is going to be around nutrition, transparency, nutritional data. I mean, we saw all the trend coming up. So we designed this store. I mean, the brand was called Food Secret. It was quite a big store, maybe too big as, as the first one. That has been the first mistake. Always start small. That would be the first advice to everyone. Maybe too big, too, too aggressive, too, too much. But it was pretty cool. So it was a sort of replication of Pret-a-Manger, eat uh, the sort of places where you go for lunch. Uh, we're doing soup, salad, and sandwiches. The difference is that we analyzed every ingredient by the ground. So we were the first one in the market that put a sort of touch screen. We had those environments. I mean, we built them up with computers and and homemade software. There was no like self-service uh, checking environment at that time. I think it was 
2009 we launched it, end of 2009. And you could basically follow up a diet. So you could go on the screen, uh, pick the ingredients, so build up your soup, your salad, your sandwich, know exactly how many protein, carbs uh, you had in the sandwich. Everyone was weighted by the gram. The kitchen was a nightmare because I needed to make sure that everyone was really weighting everything to make sure that obviously the message was actually worse. It's been super painful. The software was all made, so it was crashing. I I spent... uh, how many nights in Seoul? I still remember with the, with the software developer at 4 a.m. We had people coming out of clubs, completely drunk. They were coming and, and basically showing us their, their butt on, on the window while we were lying on the table and trying to get a nap while we were figuring out how to get the system up and running. Cash point were crashing. So that has been a couple of years of my life, but it's been great. And actually... After that, I, I pivoted on, on full technology only. So we took all that experience. And after the wearable came to market, uh, uh, Apple Health, all the trend that you had apps in the phone to monitor your health. That's how we started iterating, if, if you want, on a, on a software only sort of environment. Which you, been part- were you using other people's money at this point? Did you go and raise capital? And how did you how did you feel about uh the, the issues that you had in terms of investors was that tricky was that a pressure for you well listen on the first venture we didn't really raise we i mean we raised in the family so we were two young entrepreneurs and we i mean generally people they tell you that first raises within the family so we burned a lot of like family money that was mm-hmm. not that was not fantastic but that's somehow that's how it works uh, you 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 raise between the people that knows you in the first uh, sort of adventure it would be impossible to raise venture capital and i don't know raising funding is the art that is the worst i think and the hardest exercise that you have to do because com- competition is super high and to be honest after 15 years and what we're doing with the company that that, that we're pulling together now which is public pressure I mean, going back, you realize that everything is about the process. Like you need to hit a point in your life where you have the right founders, the story works, the product works, it does have traction. So all the reason why maybe you couldn't raise before is because you had a great idea, you had great passion, but somehow you were missing a couple of ingredients. So, and, But you still had the passion, you still had the drive, you still had the energy. Where did you go next? But I mean, it didn't work in the sense that we didn't grow it. I mean, the ambition was to build the chain out of it. Uh, we would need to raise a lot of funds. We couldn't raise the fund. We ended up basically selling to another food chain, the old real estate or whatever we did. So we, we walked out with a bit oh, of so a loss. It wasn't a disaster then? No, it was not a disaster. It was not a disaster because, I mean, there's always a way to... to but it's a disaster emotionally because every time you get in such a project, the ambition is, hi, I'm going to take over eat and prep, I'm going to be a chain, I'm going to have 15 stores in London, people are going to love it. And then what you figured out is you actually, you deliver a lot of ideas. Like, for example, you know, Alfredo, no? which is one of the founders of Public Pressure. We always mm. like laugh around because we were the first one to bring the sort of communication of food stores with uh, pictures of people, real people in black and white and the colors of the food, the color of the brand. I think that... Uh, Itsu actually still worked their way. Yeah, we had, we had a lot of people from from the food industry that were coming to the store and just take pictures, take notes. So <laughs> in a sort of way, so in a sort of way, when when you realize that, you say, "I've done something really good." I mean, the government actually, the, the London Council came down, wanted to give us a prize because we were the first one to really disclose the nutritional information. So for society, for I don't know, Elf, uh, it was a really good initiative. So, I mean, on a lot of stuff, we've been very successful. That mm. If you look at it from, from a business perspective, we didn't grow into a chain and we had to somehow give it up, sell it, get out, exit and, and, and transition. Then with the software only, that one has been pretty good as well. I mean, the difficult bit is always scaling. I mean, we won an acceleration on Startup Bootcamp. We've been with a team in Barcelona for six months. We had a lot of clients, uh, insurance company. We started iterating on, I don't know, you say pushing health habits within corporate environments. Uh, so that one, again, has been 
great, but for me, success it means I build a unicorn. So let's let's set uh, what it, what is the goal. Maybe, maybe tell people what a unicorn is, because a lot of listeners are not are not tech entrepreneurs. Uh, could you explain what a unicorn is? It's the billion dollar company. Like it, when you get to a billion dollar valuation, you're basically defining digital as as a unicorn. So every entrepreneur that gets in the industry is pretty much aiming to get there. Otherwise, you build a sustainable small business, uh, which uh, can leave out a consultancy. That's what we have done with the tech. We have a lot of clients that we were developing software. We're developing our product. We were paying the bills. Uh, it was great. But still, you were not the Facebook guy, right? So that, that that's maybe what, what, what entrepreneurs like me always search. You know, the, the, the actually, the real success that's for us will be, okay, I've done something. That's my legacy. I really crack a problem. And the fact that I'm that big, it means that, what I what I created is valuable. Right. So maybe it's too ambitious, but that's what most of the founder in tech are really coming to the industry with. A lot of people listening to this podcast are from the music industry. So how much how much a part has music played in your life and and in your ambition? Because public pressure is is very focused on music and entertainment. How how are you a music guy? Do you do you love music? Have you have you always had a part of it, or did you see music as an opportunity that you wanted to to to, to work with and 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 uh, and do something special with? But I raise my hands immediately. I think I'm ignorant on music, but I love it at the same time. So ignorant in the sense that I didn't really spend time to to know the artist, to understand the trends. So I basically just go with with. With what I like, what what give what what basically ra- raise emotion when I'm running into something. I, I mean, when we were kids, I think we all remember the breakup playlist. Uh, so since you are like 12, 13, 14, uh, I remember with the Walkman and the CD, like <laughs> Phil Collins, uh, I don't know Michael Jackson. There was the one where you were like away on holiday with the family and 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 away from the from the love of the time so from there music start getting into your dna start getting into into your way of living so i always had my headphone on depending on the mood deciding on the music i'm a bit of a dreamer so the personal secret is that if I would have a camera, you would have seen me maybe walking in my sitting room with the music on, dreaming about closing the deals, dreaming about building the company. So I, I always got a lot of motivation, a lot of a lot of energy out of music. I I live on music, so in that sense uh, super important. I don't know how many people are like me in a certain way. I'm assuming quite a lot. I, I would say most most people. Um love music and there's a lot of studies that say that if you take music away from people's lives their lives are poorer and and if you then reintroduce it it's an incredibly euphoric moment they do these reality tv shows where they send people to a desert island or they they send people off to an environment where there is no music and when they play the music it's an incredibly joyous experience because they really miss it so i think most people are sustained by music but they're not necessarily experts or they're not necessarily people that you know that that look behind behind the music into into what's going on most people just enjoy music i think you're i think you're you're very normal in in that respect how did music start to play a part in your business thinking but just very recently to be honest because you know that in the team i mean public pressure is uh, i mean you have four founders so one it's me and if you want i'm the what free guy let's put it that way the technology guy the crypto guy the one that takes care about the part of the business then you have Alfredo Violante, who actually founded Public Pressure in 2015 as a discovery magazine. So it was all about supporting emerging artists, independent artists, new trends, uh, and really getting the, the 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 discovery exercise going. Uh, so, uh, was that I a mean, physic, a physical magazine, or was it an online? No, magazine? it was an online a digital magazine in, so, in Italy. Or or is that where to tell us a little bit about that, so that we can get some context for what Public Pressure is? No, Fred has always lived in London. I think he moved to London like me very early. I think he's 10 years older than me. I mean, we knew each other for the last 20 years. He's a fantastic brand and, and, and designer. So we work pretty much in every venture together in designing apps, designing stuff. 
And then I remember at some point he had this public pressure and I, I wanted to convince him to do a political movement. But then I mean, when I moved to San Marino and I started work on, on, on more governmental and institutional stuff, that, that's how somehow the public pressure discovery magazine came, came together. You know, he had this dream to provide a format, a platform to help independent emerging artists, independent labels. That's what he had done. They had done, I think, very well. Yep was not much of a business model behind it. So it was really something that it was serving the industry, like more of a sort of non-profit kind, kind of exercise. A I passion, think. a passion play. A passion, exactly. He has yeah. been a musician forever. I think, uh, I mean, in his early days, he was even quite famous. He did a, a couple of hits in Italy. He was doing DJ nights. So, I mean, he's the music, if you want, DNA of, of, of the company. Right. And then together with Giulia and Francesca, Giulia Maresca and Francesca Versace, I remember I was like telling them, have a look at NFTs, like have a look at crypto, it's interesting, you're very creative. I think the web free industry needs creativity, needs new, 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 new input from, from the outside. And a kind of, I think, serendipity, they, they, they analyzed the market and they came up with music. No? They looked at the initial NFT collection from Steve Aoki, Blau, and, and they said, this is like 30 second loop with a, with a bit of an avatar. I think that it's going to be so much that we can do with fashion brands, with musicians, with culture, with, with Italian creativity. And that's how the music came into the picture. And that's how somehow I brought Alfredo into the picture. I said, listen, you didn't have a format. We just came up with this idea. How do you feel about adding a web free layer on, on public pressure? And within one day, we were up and running with the project. So, so you have you that's uh, an entrepreneur, a tech genius, somebody that understands crypto, somebody that understands the metaverse, somebody that can can raise capital. You have Alfredo, who's a passionate music entrepreneur, and then you have Julia and Francesca from the fashion industry as the four founders. That's an interesting mix of people, and and how does that work dynamically? What do you what do you sort of bring? to the party to you know to, to to create this 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 company public pressure which we'll come on and talk about in a little bit more detail but i mean the dynamic is that everyone does his own like we leave uh, the girls uh, doing the creativity because i mean i don't think maybe we can add myself and alfredo because we understand but they are basically running the whole relationship with the fashion brands like diesel it was the latest collaboration that we've done we have a lot of more coming so we let them dream i think uh, the people like fashion can understand trends, can understand people, can understand what people want to buy. Because at the end of the day, fashion is a lot about status, positioning. I want to be that guy. So that that's why I'm getting closer to a specific brand and a specific look because that fits my personality. So they're really good at doing that. We back them up, uh, obviously, with the tech, uh, with the business model, with the strategy, with the NFT community, web free community. That has been pretty much my job. I spend my time on Telegram chats, uh, talking to blockchains, talking to uh, other NFT collection, and trying to build, if you want, the, the, the community and, and the partnership on the technology side. And then Alfredo really knows music. So we have an AR team. Uh, so we, which is somehow dealing with the relationship. I think you know most of them are dealing with the with the relationship with the artists, with the labels, uh, and that's basically how everything is being cooked in in the company. Amazing. Let's go back a little bit before we just go deep dive into public pressure. How did you get introduced to, or how did you get inspired by the metaverse and and Web three and the blockchain? You mentioned very briefly San Marino there. Tell us a little bit about about how you got excited about this new area of crypto and metaverse and web3 so the story the story is quite simple like as i said i've been in innovation for for a long time around 14 to 15 i mean bitcoin ethereum crypto it was something that started to to become more than a rumor in any technology gathering meetup so I needed to have a look into it, right? I said, what is it? It's getting popular. I need to understand it. I need to, to have a look into it. So I started investing a few few thousand pounds, uh, understanding how the market works, understanding how, how it looks like. Then, I mean, that's another side of the story. Like when I moved back from London, 
I, during this time, I mean, I've done a few few ventures, but at the same time, I was collaborating with Venture Capital Fund Accelerator. I've been mentoring, for example, Virgin Startup. I was a mentor in Startup Bootcamp. I was a mentor at Mass Challenge. So I really spend hours and hours sitting with teams, sitting with startup, uh, getting to go off the ground, doing the advisory. So somehow, I mean, people, people knew me in the industry. And when I got back... Uh, I mean, I started my PhD on, on, on ecosystem dynamics at CAS Business School. I was actually asked because I started working with one of the professors there on, on a project on food that he was actually wanting to move along. And then I started explaining my view on how technology works, so what should be the strategic approach. I had a few framework, uh, if you want, pushed out on my own website. And he said, I mean, this actually is really interesting. It would be great that you, you put it in a, in a sort of academia environment. So that's what I started somehow advising and working in academia, spent three, four years there before going to San Marino. I had the pleasure to somehow advise large companies like Bosch, uh, being in, if you want, in, in the Innovation Summit, uh, you know, deciding and understanding where innovation is going, where trends have to be managed, uh, how you look at the innovation portfolio. And to cut the story short, when I go back to Italy, for some reason, I got close to politics. I imagine how crazy is that. So at the time, there was a sort of new movement coming together and the value proposition work. We want uh, experts from the industry to somehow drive down uh, the, the strategy, no, the, the, the political goal. And I ended up uh, basically leading whatever it was, the digital and transformational side of it. So I was running a group of around 30 people and basically writing down the part of the of the political program. So it was really a technical sort of exercise. And uh, and that's where I met a few people that actually were Italian but living in San Marino. So at the same time, they really liked working with me. They really liked the way I was somehow setting, setting the vision that out of, again, serendipity, that's amazing how, how life works. Uh, there's been a change in government in the Republic of San Marino who actually came to add up, uh, if you want, the industry and development side of the government. They have slightly different names that, than the Italian uh, institutional architecture. So they call me up and they say, why don't you come and have a chat and you explain what would you do? So I spent a few months uh, within within the ministries explaining what I would have done for the Republic of San Marino to increase the GDP, to attract uh, technology people, to make it interesting for technology and innovation. And I ended up with a parliamentary nomination as president and CEO of the Republic of San Marino Innovation Institute. And that's where basically I work on three or four pieces of legislation, which were somehow the underlying innovation legislation that was basically all the incentivization for companies or so tax breaks, uh, different regulation in terms of similar to AIS, uh, SEIS, and that the sort of plan that the government does to increase a, a particular sector. But then on top of it, I started working on specific vertical and the main vertical at the time, it was blockchain and crypto. So when we announced uh, that we wanted to work on a legislative program for digital assets, that's where, I mean, the industry opened up. I, I, I met everyone. Plus, I think around 2017, it was very popular for country to, to, to look into regulatory approach on blockchain, crypto, digital assets, whatever we're going to define them. I mean, Switzerland was the first one. Malta was going into the process to approve the, the, the legislative framework. Liechtenstein announced, then San Marino came behind. So there was it was very... Well, very, very popular as a topic. And that's how I got very close because I understood all the aspects. And uh, those countries that you talk about, they, they, I mean, bluntly, I mean, they're known as tax havens. You know, that's essentially where people go for lower tax rates. And so you mentioned it there about, about incentives and about tax breaks and how much of that of your work was looking at ways to provide incentives for, for, for companies to do that and how much of it was actual Innovative technical innovation. I mean, to be honest, understanding the tax breaks, it was like an afternoon with a fiscal lawyer to figure out what we could be done. So it's the easy part, right? Like understanding how you can create uh, an ecosystem where people want to really be in there. So also, what are going to be the services? Are you going to attract the company? But mostly was. Uh, how do we evaluate uh, that there is real innovation? Right? Mm. Because I've seen projects that were knocking on the door, 
And they were saying, oh, we just bought this new machinery to, I don't know, clean leather and doing pegs. So can we be innovative? And I said, not really. I mean, either you, either you did the machinery, either you produce the machinery, or either you're not going to get a tax break only because you're using an innovative machinery. So this is like a stupid example. But, but I mean, all the job, it was understanding how am I going to implement this idea in a fair and a sort of equitable way because otherwise it becomes pure tax break everyone can knock on the door and no one is going to pay tax and that was not 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 pretty much the principle the principle was to create an innovative ecosystem where you have leadership uh, in the in their own sector really driving uh, technology and, and innovation so we spent a lot of time figuring out how this sort of due diligence process is going to be and the same happened pretty much on blockchain so it was not really about no, it was the tax breaks, but it was really much about what digital assets are, like what, what's an utility token, what's an investment token, what's a payment token. So we spent hours and hours analyzing all the legislation and all the way that other countries basically approach this topic. Then we, we spoke with all the industry, like, like that's like, I think where I built most on my network, like foundation, blockchain, startup. Uh, large corporation. I had a scientific committee of over 40, 50 people that were somehow contributing to this to this sort of knowledge build-up. It took us almost a year of continuous meeting and discussion to somehow be, be, be safe in producing a legislation. It was, I think, 10, 12 pages, which was approved in parliament in 2019, uh, which I think it was the, the third legislative framework in the world on digital assets. So maybe that one is... Is a, is a tick in my career that was collectively, if you want, agreed and, and produced by the industry. Amazing. And and that so that that particular phase of your life came to an end naturally, or you decided that you wanted to go back into the commercial entrepreneurial world after a year of meetings that sound incredibly dry? <laughs> No, that's a, that's another good story. Like I'm not sure how far I can I can share the details, but what happened is uh, the government collapsed. Like, oh. like as well as happened on politics, and I mean it has been hard to push such a such a such a topic uh, into the rooms and into 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 all the approval process that we needed to. So effectively, I think I created a few enemies. And effectively, as soon as I lost the political support, uh, I think I was sitting in those in those conversations where <laughs> the suggestion the suggestion were we're not gonna really trust you. I don't think that we can trust you. But that, that that's another topic. Like, does an institutional seat uh, work on friendship or does it work on reporting? Like my point was until someone is sitting in the chair. Obviously, that's who I report to. That's that's who I agree the policy and and the interest I'm looking after. So for me, it was mm. be weird because if you have a change of people sitting in the chair, you have a change of policy. But then you sit down with institution and you just have conversation how on how you want to change those policies. Why I think that you realize that in the world it works a lot of a lot about I don't know personal relationship. So I mean, the impression was that I would have been in a very sort of Starting from scratch, like going through all the meeting, why did it, we did it that way? Why we chose these people? Why we chose those partners? So I needed to basically repeat three years, three years of my life, and I said no. I mean, I need to build. It was exciting. It was fantastic. Three years. We built an amazing team. We we, we pushed the legislation. I'm just not going to do it. And it was basically February to twenty. So it would have been really good because then we had COVID. So consider I was living in Milan and traveling to San Marino. That's where the music came into the picture because I spent endless kilometers because I was driving up and down. It was 400 kilometers to go and 400 kilometers to come back. And that has always been silent, no cause, music, thinking. So the whole blockchain strategy, the whole blockchain legislation, it came up of my relationship between music and driving and my brain. Amazing. To figure out how this stuff works. So, so you left? You left, I presume, um, at, at some point, and and so how was the transition? Let's talk about public pressure in a little bit more detail now. How was the transition into this amazing venture that is public pressure? How did how did that how did it come about? You you left this legislative, governmental, political world, came back into the commercial, creative, entrepreneurial world. Was that a difficult transition for you mentally to kind of adjust to come back into that? 
But I mean, mentally, emotionally, I mean, super in a super transparent way, I had to somehow keep on raising up. Uh, I call them failure, but just because I couldn't really see the end of it, right? So when you start a venture and then something happens and you cannot see the end of your dream, at the end of your picture, I mean, the project it was just at the beginning. So fantastic the legislation, but we had. I don't know, sign agreement and partnership to do amazing projects. So in another three, four years, we could have really shown the result of the strategy that, that we brought into the picture. So it's always like difficult and hard when you have to say, okay, I'll start again. Like I got first time 20%, second time 40%, the third time 50%, then 60%. So you say that you are in a process, but as a human being, that, that, that's, I think, is the word uh, that the people in, in my position always share. Like, it's all about passion, it's always about persistence, uh, and it's always about patience. So it's not a, an overnight success. Again, until you grow into the process, uh, you, you feel that you're going to get there at some point. But the hardest bit is keep on redesigning and finding the energy and the strength. And that's, and that's where I think I, I I see my skills like I've always been able to sit down again put my music on uh, no, get out of the back emotional sort of feelings and move into the visionary and say okay now we get on again we start again so that, that and I was in in lockdown I mean maybe that one has been lucky because in lockdown we were all like I don't know in a different world like never happened in your life that you can do anything <laughs> So I was sitting in the mountain. I mean, we spent the, the, the first three months or four months of lockdown up in the mountain. I mean, Julia was there. Francesca was there. So we were lucky enough that we could take walks around with the kids, with the dogs, and have conversation about business, that get back home on Google Meets. So in this sort of weird bubble that has been the lockdown, that's how everything came together. Are you live in Switzerland now, is that right? In Yeah, I do. Just over the Italian border? Yeah, uh, so a lovely, a lovely part of the world to spend lockdown. It does, it yeah. does. I like uh, it. So, 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 just to sort of follow up on that kind of train of thought, you start again. You get the energy. You get the team. Tell us what the overriding, um, the overriding sort of elevator pitch of public pressure is. What is it? What does it do? Public pressure. The elevator pitch is a web free media company which has got the ultimate goal to move music in web free. Obviously, music has got a lot of different business models and a lot of different, uh, if you want, section within the whole music industry. So each of them has got a different value proposition. I think that today we're very much on the discovery, on the gaming experimentation. We have done a lot of music and games, web free experimentation. Even the diesel drop has been somehow used, the, used in games. So there is a lot about the limited edition, fashion, discovery label approach. So how can a brand, uh, I don't know, create a relationship with emerging breakthrough artists uh, and then somehow position itself in a, in a new consumer base? Because effectively, that's what I think brands are looking for, talking to a different community, to, talking to a different user base. And at the same time, Web3 is desperately looking for recognition. So the fact that you can somehow merge the two, it's it's very well perceived. And that's very much what, what, what we have been doing today. How um how far do you think people how how uh, advanced is is the kind of mainstream knowledge of web three and the metaverse? Is there still a lot of education that needs to be done about what it actually is for the average music fan or the average gaming fan? And how do we achieve that? I think it is. I mean, in terms of metaverse, to be honest, I I have a thesis, but I'm still very confused on how is it going to play out? Like It's absolutely not clear to me how it's going to play out. The only thing I'm pretty certain is that we're going to go back to scratch uh, and to the beginning of society aggregation. Like, I don't believe that you're going to have brands building their own metaverse and people walking into it. I don't believe that it's going to be a corporate metaverse. I don't believe it's going to be a Facebook metaverse. But I believe that it's going to be a people community metaverse. So a little bit like to do an example, when when the humans discovered uh, the Americas, then you had a lot of people going there and started building cities, community aggregation businesses. 
And that was not somehow decided from the top, right? It was organic. Organic, exactly. Mm. That was the word I was looking for. And I think the metaverse is going to be very much in that direction. Like all these NFTs communities, Telegram groups, you have people that never met, which are actually chatting every day, share a lot of personal stuff, sharing the vision, governing, uh, if you want, the community through open governance, which is based on the NFT ownership. So in a certain way, it's a sort of very tribal uh, societal aggregation mechanism that is going on in Web3. And these are the guys which walk into the sandbox, we watch walk into the Minecraft, start creating private server, token gating environment, uh, and start using the metaverse to somehow give physicality to a relationship that is completely digital. Because most of the time, these humans, they have a picture of an NFT, a sort of acronym, so no one knows the real person behind, behind the, the handle in Telegram on Twitter. So I think they miss completely the, the, the personal relationship and, and this virtual world that becomes the way where you start aggregating in a more, if you want, traditional human, human perspective. That is my thesis. That, that, that's how I think uh, the metaverse is going gonna, is gonna to play out. So, so you, see it more as to... a, you see it more as a society than as a, a, a technology play in some ways, it, un, underpinned by technology, but more societal in its, in its nature. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm, very interesting. Uh, and, but you, you've chosen to work with, a, with an industry in the music industry that, frankly, is not great at innovation. I mean, we do we get there eventually. Um, and, and, and I don't think anybody could argue that, you know, with the advent of streaming and with the advent of, of uh, you know, social media use and, and so on, we, we, I think we are pretty good at getting there eventually. But we're quite slow to adopt technology sometimes we're quite resistant to technology sometimes um have you found it frustrating as a fast-moving tech entrepreneur to engage with the music industry in terms of getting them to embrace this but i don't think it's that different from any other technology play that you have in other sectors so that's part of the game I, as soon as uh, you have if you want uh, the early adopters, because it's about the distribution curve. Like if you get if you get technical, you have the usual distribution curve. And when you work on the initial five percent, ten percent, obviously the more you try to sell the value proposition to to the followers, it's gonna take time before adoption, of course. So it's part of the game, to be honest. It doesn't surprise me. And it's actually challenging and interesting understanding how to drive the education and educate and, and, and drive the process to, to get it absorbed and to get it adopted. But again, the good bit is that once the music industry decides, somehow the change is dramatic. Like mm. the, the adoption of new technologies, like moving from cassettes to, to CDs, and moving from CDs to, to digital files, uh, talking about the Apple, what it was the iPad. No, it was not the iPod. Was it the iPod? Was yeah, the one? iPod and the iTunes Store. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, iPod and uh, iTunes Store. And then Spotify so. and streaming, and, and now we're moving into you know to other areas as well. You're right. And we, we get there eventually. That's my point, is that when we do it, we do it really well. It's sometimes just very hard to start that boulder moving down a hill, you know. Oh, can I, can I be provocative? Sure, do. That's that's the whole point of this podcast. Be provocative. I I think that what it feels like is uh, that the power is so centralized in the music industry that you have a sort of cartel, sorry if I call it like that, of three, three main names. That once they say yes, that's where 80%, 90% of the industry moves. That was, I think, the streaming, right? I don't think you had a technology disruption because, I mean, they built a fantastic platform. I mean, nothing against Spotify, but they needed the rights. So until you get the rights holder to say yes, and what, the only thing I discover is the rights are pretty aggregating. Maybe that's the future that we want to change. That's so centralized and aggregated that once you get the yes, obviously the adoption is huge because... So you're referring to the three major labels, which is Sony, Warner's, Universal, and, and their catalogs, essentially. Um, and I think the the generally accepted figure is seventy percent of the catalog is owned by those three major labels and their associated companies. Thirty percent by the wider independent music community. Just to add some clarity to that. And yeah, if you absolutely. Can, if you can somehow 
work around those traditional rights blockages, you can do something very interesting. Does that mean yeah, that you're talking directly to artists, directly to managers, directly away from those old school traditional gatekeepers? You're looking to build relationships beyond the rights holders in some way? Cur- currently, yes, because, I mean, we are early adopters in understanding how new technology can work in an industry and you need the, the counterparty to be, again, an early adopter. So more likely you find music, musician early adopters, which are independent, uh, young. A lot of artists, a lot of musicians are actually already in crypto, already in the crypto communities. So these are the individual guys, the small independent labels. That's where naturally you have a lot more openness to look at new stuff, design new stuff, because you are searching for, 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 for new stuff on a daily basis. So you need this sort of attitude to begin with until you somehow lock a business model, lock a, a sort of value proposition that then can be somehow absorbed by, by the whole industry. So it's not by decision. So it's not a political, just to make clear, it's not a political more. I mean, we know that that's how the music industry works. So we know that 70% of the rights sits in three major labels. And I think we need to convince them that we are creating a better future and it's more likely that we're going to somehow create this better future collaborating with independent and, and, and emerging artists at the and beginning. What, what's your sell to them? Is it you're going to make a lot more money? This is a new revenue stream? Is this where, you're, where, you, where you kind of major your, your pitch to them? Or are you talking more about a cultural change? Or both? But listen, I was having, I think it's very much a cultural change. Again, this is my web free thesis. Like the last phase, I mean, call it capitalism, call it digital first trend. I mean, the result is that we have centralized giants. Right? That's the result everywhere. You've got companies like Deloitte, which are basically running their own accounting, auditing, and, and consulting together with BSG. You have Facebook, which is running social media. Everywhere you look at, you have three, four centralized, you giant, uh, which operate globally. I mean, initially, the value proposition of the internet was uh, a more decentralized, again, and a more democratized environment where people could find their own space. It didn't deliver. So that's the reason why we call it web free, because we're changing the underlying technology architecture to really achieve uh, that initial goal, which is about empowering people, which is about giving ownership of data, giving control of relationship, not having central intermediaries with such a, a gatekeeping power. So that's the angle I'm looking into, into the industry. So if you apply it in a, in a very simple example, it's like basically saying, if I go on holiday, I can either go to the huge resort where I'm going to basically stay locked for 15 days. I have the swimming pool. I have the go. I have everything. So that resort can be everywhere. And I'm not going to have an idea on what's the culture and the country itself because I'm going to live in a bubble. And that's for me somehow is the centralized result. Or either I'm going to book myself uh, know, an economy ticket, an Airbnb, and as soon as I land, uh, I'm going to need to start walking around and figure out the coffee shop, uh, the local shop, uh, where am I going to buy my food, who am I going to meet, I need to speak the language. And that's what I call somehow the normal human being, like that, 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 that's the normal interaction. So the future for me is that the technology layer, the web3 layer, can basically re-empower a lot of smaller interaction between people. So we go back to smaller shops, smaller consultancy. We go back where people weigh, individual people weigh to provide the experience in their particular sector. It's going to be very important because people are bored of this sort of standard centralized sort of exercise. So within this future, like I'm not going to say that maybe we're going to have a, a different market share architecture. I somehow hope so. I'm honest because I like the idea that artists are going to own the AIP. Uh, the vision is when I produce a song, the first thing I'm going to do is chuck it in the blockchain. And from there, I can tokenize the AP. I can provide the NFTs with licenses. I'm in control of everything from my computer, from a portal. And 
I mean, whoever comes and wants to work with me has got to produce value. So either it's distribution value, either it's production value, either it's creative value. Correct me if I'm doing something which is completely wrong in, in, a, in a sort of music language. But in a principle, that's the future I would love to have. No, I think the principles are the, the same. Industry. I mean, you know, the idea of creativity, marketing, finding an audience distribution. I mean, they are standard. That's standard language across most sectors, isn't it? I mean, it's essentially make a record, find an audience. And, and if you can put the technology layer on there that allows the artist to take control of that, Who's not going to like that? I mean, the major labels won't like it, but you know, apart from that, everybody else will. I think you know because it's uh, it, it it plays into your idea of of a cultural societal um, movement that allows people to you know to 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 move away from a gatekeeping environment. Yeah, and he scared the shit out of me, Andy. Like to, to be honest, because I, I'm sometimes wondering whether it's going to be the usual idealistic uh, sort of vision that is going to crash against uh, the reality of life, uh, where at the end of days, emperors uh, and power and money are going to just tell you, "Listen, I mean, it was a good idea, but we we're going to stay there. We're not we're not going to rearchitect anything." Like sometimes that that's the question I ask myself: Is it doable? Is it really the future that we're going to? I think see a lot of like big people going in that direction. So I'm still hopeful. In my experience, in my 40 odd years in the music industry, the default position of most of the gatekeepers, particularly in the, for example, the artist management community, that the default position is no. But I think what you realize over time is what they're really saying is no, but convince me. Um, so I'm not really interested, Sergio, but if you can convince me that by working with you and by, you know, entrusting my artist work to you, you're going to help me expand my audience, bring in new revenues, you know, do something creatively that's going to motivate the artist, then let's talk. And, and clearly that's the stage you're at at the moment is talking to the industry. And what's the kind of feedback you're getting from people within the music industry? Do you find it frustrating? Do you find it inspiring? Are you, are you finding people with an open mind, a closed mind? How's your, what's your sense of it in the, in the couple of years that you've been doing this? I think very open. Like, obviously, the more you, you talk to independent and, and individual, the more excitement you get. Everyone is still unclear what's going to be exactly the outcome because obviously you have different applications like what I discussed until today can be the underlying technology underpinning the industry but then you have all the, the consumer or B2B products so an NFT collection I'm going to sell music with NFTs instead of uh, Bandcamp or, or Beport uh, I can actually stream music I can have NFT which are going to allow me to, to stream I can have token gated playlist I can have curation so there's so many application that i think we're still in a phase where we're figuring it out uh, which one is going to stick more which one is actually more interested but again every time i mean we get into an intellectual process and the idea is we need to choose i'm always like we don't need to choose like like i think that what we need to do is to help the artist and the music industry to understand and choose because the whole point is to provide a framework under which you can decide what to do I, that's why I always go back and when I have a moment of, of, I don't know what's going on, I always go back to stories of emerging artists, independent artists, which build their career and their numbers out of like different activities, completely different activities like YouTube channels and Patreon and membership. So they really never gave up into the standard industry mechanics and they build themselves out of their creativity, ability to engage the community. And that's, I think, is the greatest example. So the idea is we want to create a framework that a lot more people, so you don't need to be a genius for actually getting there, because I think that's the feedback that you get from the industry. Yeah, but that guy is, I don't know, is outstanding. You know, that guy has got skills that no one, no one else has, has got an ability to, to talk to people, to be a marketer of itself to create interesting content that I would never be able to replicate. So I think that the challenge is how do we create a framework that can be replicated over time and can be really helpful to, to, to engage community, distribute music, and somehow get sustainable. I think that the long-term goal is how can we make music a sustainable business model because I think most of, most of the artists are, are not really sustaining themselves out of music. 
How much of a problem do you think the language around this is? I mean, NFTs, for example, have become oh, a slightly toxic word now, isn't it? Because so many people have come in and 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 failed or done it very badly or have come into the music industry with a get-rich-quick scheme that hasn't worked. Are you finding that an issue? Are you trying to subtly change the the dynamic and the approach to what an NFT is and, and how it's presented? But to be honest, we are moving away completely from uh, a web web-free terminology. I, ideally, we need to concentrate on the benefits and the characteristics. Like an NFT is something which allows you to do different things than a digital file on iTunes. So what are those different things? Uh, how they can be monetized? And how can they be placed into a UI, UX experience that doesn't require wallets, uh, web-free knowledge, uh, and crypto knowledge? That's very much where we are, which is a very good point because it means that whatever we we somehow experimented in a very crypto sort of crypto way actually worked and we, we're going towards a more wider adoption. Crypto is a terrifying word for a lot of people. They see it as being scary and unstable and full of scammers and, and people that want to rip you off. And you know, how can you reassure you reassure people about the future of cryptocurrency? It's not going away, right? It's 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 going to stay. But listen, I'll do an example. Like the French Revolution has been one of the biggest, uh, if you want, society changes uh, that happened. Right? Some somehow, I mean, the population decided to cut out of the king, uh, and they decided to change the governance on top and move to democracy. Like, how many people would have been scared? Like, oh my God, I mean, we're not going to be protected. How the army is going to work? I mean, are people going to start raiding our homes? So every change is scary. But the only thing I deeply believe about crypto and web free, that is the biggest wealth redistribution exercise that never happened. I mean, in the past, we needed a war to redistribute wealth. So we need to figure out that if we are going into a peaceful society, so we are all against somehow war, obviously, and I agree on that point, but I'm going to need to embrace something that is going to allow change. Otherwise, I'm going to spend my time going back home and keep on complaining about the same things, keep on complaining how much uh, the banks are not helping me in my business, uh, keep on complaining on why the salaries goes up, why I have inflation, why the government is deciding their way. And crypto technology came into the picture to re-empower people in certain aspects of their life to control their future. So if we all believe that this is the opportunity, we got to understand that at the beginning is like when we discovered the Americas, like when you were going there, it was not as safe as your home. I mean, people were killed. You had people fighting for the peace of land and you didn't have jurisdictional power to protect you. But still, I mean, the vision to say, I can have a bigger home, I can have a bigger business, I can have a bigger land, I can have more future. That's what drove people. So we need to figure out that we are exactly in the same position. It's not perfect. It's a bit of a wild west. But either we believe that this is a better future or either we don't. That's the only decision that people are going to need to take. And if we believe it's a better future like I do, that's it. We need to survive with the, with the problems and we need to work together to fix them and make sure that the future is going to be a better place. Let's all hope the future is a better place. Sergio Matola, thank you so much for joining us on uh, My Beautiful Mistakes. So good luck with uh, public pressure. Good, good luck for everything in the future. Thank you very much, Andy, for having me.